Exodus 19, 1 through 9. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from the Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Yet you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the, Lord, of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, a long time ago, uh, at the foot of a big mountain in the middle of a desert, you spoke. And you spoke to your people who didn't know you very well at all. And you made big promises. And you promised to be their people, their God, and you called them to be your people. And you said that your people would be your treasured possession. And Father, that promise, that conversation that happened a long, long, long time ago um, reverberates down through history and right down to us today. And, and even as we welcome new members, that their promises are just kind of an echo uh, of those promises that Israel made and that bigger promise you made. But Father, it is our desire that we may know something of what that means, that we might uh, experience something of what you mean when you say that you desire for us to be a treasured possession. And we want to know what it means for us to say, yes, we give our lives to you. Yes, we consecrate our lives to you. Yes, we will obey you. Lord, will you grant us to know what that means, not not in a dry, sort of duty-bound way, but that it might be our delight and our joy. So we need you to do that miracle. In Jesus' name, amen. Please sit down. Uh, and it's um, helpful if you turn back to page 12. We're continuing our series in Exodus today. And, um, but we're entering a new phase of Exodus. So up until this point, um, Exodus has been mainly about um, how Israel escapes from slavery in Egypt. But now that's over. They're out. And now they're learning how to live as the people of God. They don't know God very well yet, but they're learning to get to know him. And they're learning how to be his people. And this conversation that we've got in front of us is a critical conversation in the history of the Bible, in the history of God's people, in the history of Israel, and in the history of the church. And the reason for that is that this is the story where God and God's people enter into what we call a covenant, a permanent, 
committed, intimate relationship that transforms everything. Now, one of the striking things about uh, this reading and about the whole section of Exodus that we're entering into is the focus upon a word, an idea, that is very, very strange and maybe frightening to you. Um, let me ask it this way. What is it that comes to your mind? Don't actually answer, but in your mind, answer. Um, what is it that comes to your mind when you think about the word obedience? For many, now, so, is it like, oh man, that's super exciting. Obedience, like Disneyland. Um, is that it? Yeah, see? Um, for a lot of us, the word obedience is like, it's like a drudgery word, right? It's like, ugh. Because the implication for a lot of us is that it, it implies an imposition of somebody else's will upon us. And for a lot of us, that feels squishing. I just made that word up. Yeah, no, squishing. Yeah, that's a word. It, it feels like we're going to be uh, maybe oppressed, doesn't it? And for some of us, it's a really, really scary word. So, um, for, in fact, one of the obstacles that a lot of people have to Christianity is they're like, man, Christianity maybe is okay, except there's all these rules and there's these obligations and, and obedience. The promise to obey is, feels like this um, big, giant mountain or this big thing that's going to cr crush you. Uh, and maybe some of us who are Christians, you're right in the middle of a kind of temptation where it feels like obedience is something that is soul-crushing. But then on the other hand, what you see in this passage and what you see even in our service so far, even when we receive the new members, is that there is a certain joyfulness in saying, yes, God, I want to obey you. Did you notice one of the promises? Will you faithfully obey God's commandments all the days of your life? And, and everybody says, with the help of God, we will. There's a joy that comes from that. Why? Why can there be joy in the midst of obedience? And then when you look at our passage, there's this word where God says to Israel, you will be my treasured possession, which is a precious word. It's a concept that is beyond my capacity to describe it to you. But if you could know what it is, if I could know what it is, to be God's treasured possession, to sit under the white-hot affection of God, focused upon me and upon you and upon the church and upon Israel, not because of what we have done, but because of the overflow of his generosity. If you could understand that, if I could understand that, then we would understand why it is that to obey God is a sweet and joyful thing. Now, this is what I want to try to unpack a little bit today. And here's the main point. When God calls us to obedience... He is calling us to a life of intimacy. Now, let me explain what I mean. I'm going to point out three things. We need to, in order to understand how the call to obedience is a call to intimacy, we need to understand covenant, we need to understand love, and we need to understand mission. First of all, covenant. Go to the story here. Um, if you've been with us, uh, you know that we've been following Israel's escape from Egypt. That's what the first part of Exodus is all about. It's all about how is Israel going to get delivered from their slavery. Uh, but now we're in the second half of, or the second part of Exodus, which is 
about a different question. It's not how is Israel going to get delivered. The question now is how is Israel going to live a delivered life? Now that they're free, what is that freedom going to look like? What is um, their relationship with God going to be like now that they're no longer under the thumb of Pharaoh? Now, famously, this is the section of Exodus where we get the Ten Commandments. You've heard of the Ten Commandments, I'm sure. The Ten Commandments happen in the next chapter after the one we're in right now. However, this is important. Before God ever gives the Ten Commandments, before those commandments come, God and Israel, God and God's people, enter into a committed relationship together. It's a little bit like they get married, but not quite. It's a little bit like Israel gets adopted by God. Look, look at the reading. Do you see the vows? Look at verse 4. God proposes, first of all. Verse 4, God says to Israel, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Verse 5, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then, that, that's the Lord's proposal for this new kind of committed relationship. We call it a covenant. But then, verse 8, Israel consents. They say, yes, or I do. Um, it, real simply, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And from that moment, it gets confirmed in a few chapters, but from, from this moment, God and Israel are bound together in a very unique kind of committed relationship. It's called a covenant. And a covenant is... It's hard to describe exactly what a covenant because we don't use these very much anymore, but it's a little bit like a contract and it's a little bit like friendship, except it's far more relational and loving than a contract and far more committed than a friendship. Now, when you enter a covenant, it transforms quite naturally how it is that you behave. Um, little illustration. Uh, a long time ago, like 22 years ago, I met Amber. Now, before I met Amber, Amber's my wife, by the way, she dated lots of people. Like, <laughs> several people. Okay, okay. We, we, we can flesh this out a little bit later. A number of folks. Anyways. Now... Now, after we, <laughs> after we started, I'm in trouble, after we <laughs> got married, actually after we started dating, thankfully, um, she stopped dating anybody but me, which I really appreciated, yeah? Um, and uh, now, now um, I'm, I'm in deep now. They, my point is this, um, was it wrong that uh, she dated folks before she met me? Of course not. I'm not going to lie, I, I don't love it, but it wasn't wrong, right? Of course it wasn't. But when we entered into a committed relationship, especially when we got married, our new covenant transformed what was appropriate. And there was a natural shift. So that new relationship transformed what was acceptable behavior and what those expectations of that relationship was. A covenant transforms your behavior. 
always. Or another illustration, just hypothetical. Imagine you meet a child, a random child. Now, um, I'm sure you care about kids. But if you meet a random child, do you feel an instant obligation to feed them, clothe them, uh, take them to school, and care for every aspect of their life? Uh, no. But then imagine that you adopt that child. And imagine that you go before a judge, and um, the judge says, are you willing to be the parent of this child? And you say yes, and, and, and the uh, judge looks at the child and says, are you, are you, do you consent to being adopted? The child says yes. From that moment onward, you have a new set of res uh, privileges, and you have a new set of responsibilities. Your privilege is that you've got a kid, and your responsibility is you've got a kid, right? A covenant transforms the way we relate to each other and the appropriate behavior that accompanies that relationship. Now, keep that in mind and go back to our story. The Ten Commandments happen next chapter, but they are not random command commandments. They're not arbitrary. They're not just a, uh, uh, throwing out a set of, uh, of, of rules that God wants to impose randomly on people. Rather, all of the commands, and we'll see this over the next weeks, all the commands grow naturally. They're a natural expression of this new relationship that God has with Israel. They have entered into a covenant with each other, and the Ten Commandments is, now let me show you what this covenantal relationship means every single day. Now, that was true of ancient Israel, but it is also true of the church today. Jesus established a new covenant. It's not the exact same as this covenant. It's the successor of this covenant, and it's an improvement upon this covenant. But the same logic applies. Why do Christians follow commands? Why, do, why did the new members a few minutes ago say yes, and even maybe joyfully they said yes, we want to follow God's commands all the days of our life with the help of God because we can't do it on our own? Why do they do that? Well, part of the definition of being a Christian is that you are in a committed relationship with Jesus Christ. And that committed covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ gives you a new set of privileges and a new set of responsibilities. One of the things that this means is that if you are not a Christian and you're kind of looking at it from the outside or you're, you're, you're evaluating Christianity, the risk is that you'll look at Christianity and the main thing that will pop out to you is the moral requirements, the laws, the rules, and so forth. Let me encourage you to first look at the relationship that is being offered to you. If you start with the rules and the obligations, it will feel burdensome. If you start with the relationship that Jesus Christ is offering you, which we believe is the relationship that you were designed for and are des deeply desirous for and thirsty for but have never experienced yet, if you start with that new relationship, then, then subsequently, the rules and the commands and the obedience will make sense because they will be an expression of that new relationship. First, the, the call to, to obedience is a call to intimacy because it grows out of this new committed relationship called a covenant. Secondly, it is a covenant of love, more particularly sacrificial love. Look back at the vows. Verse 4, do you notice how the Lord bears almost all the cost for this relationship. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, pause. Um, the Lord, speaking to Israel, is summarizing all of the book of Exodus up until this point. And it's important to see here that the Lord's love for Israel is preemptive. 
here's what I mean. Israel did not do anything to deserve God's love or provoke God's love. In fact, the Lord is really, really clear later on in the book of Deuteronomy that uh, he says, listen, Israel, don't imagine that I loved you because you're like better than everybody else. Because let's face it, you're not. And he says, don't imagine, Israel, that I love you because you're like more powerful than anybody else and I wanted you on my team because I kind of need an ally. He goes, you, you were slaves. Like, let's face it, you weren't that powerful. He says, in a remarkable passage, he says, there's nothing in you that provoked me to love you. Rather, I loved you out of the sheer overflow of generosity from my own soul. My love for you, says God in Deuteronomy, was preemptive. And this is absolutely crucial for us, for understanding the joy and the intimacy of obedience. You have to see that the Lord of the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, gives himself to us fully and unreservedly. It's not just that he gives us good things. It's that he gives us himself. So Israel, they were slaves, and God acted to save them out of his own generosity. And then, in verse 4, he says... I gave, I brought you on eagles' wings to myself. The Lord is giving himself. That is to say, he's giving his own love. He's calling them not just to political liberation, but to a life of intimacy with him. I have borne you on eagles' wings, and I have brought you to myself. He brings us to himself. And then, second, then subsequently, he gives the commands. And the order is important. Let me try to illustrate this a little bit more. I want you to imagine that you are, you are going through a very, very dark time. Some of you won't have to imagine this because you're in one. Imagine you're going through a time of terrible pain and suffering and uncertainty. And then you imagine that you meet a friend, a new friend, who comes alongside you and becomes your ally and is kind to you and loves you and is loyal to you and walks the hard yards with you through the time of darkness. How will your soul naturally want to respond to that person? Won't, am I right, won't it be natural for you to respond to that kindness and love and loyalty and generosity by desiring to reflect or respond with a similar kind of kindness, love, loyalty, generosity to that person? It's natural for when you have received kindness to respond with kindness. And that's part of what's happening here. The Lord pours out a preemptive and sacrificial love upon Israel, and then that love sort of hits Israel's soul and rebounds off Israel's heart back to the Lord. And as it rebounds back to the Lord, it rebounds in the form of day-by-day -day obedience. It's a little bit like an echo. Uh, when we lived on the Upper West Side, for some reason it worked on that block, doesn't work on my block now. Um, but when we lived on the Upper West Side, I could walk out on my terrace, and I could say, hey, and I would hear an echo. I'd go, hey, 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 hey. Then my neighbors would get really irritated. Um, but it's a little bit like that. Israel's obedience to the commands is like an echo of God's love. God's love bounces off their hearts, responds back to the Lord in, a, in the same kind of love. 
And that motivates a new obedience. God speaks to Israel and says, I love you. I carried you on eagles' wings, and I want you to be my treasured possession. And that message hits Israel's heart. And they say instinctively, yes, you did bear us on eagles' wings. And we love you in return. And we love to obey you because you have loved us before we were, there was anything lovable in us. Can you see that as an image of intimacy? Obedience, the call to obedience is a call to the intimate life with the Lord. One of the greatest ways you will ever show your love for Jesus Christ is by obeying him day in and day out. Obedience is simply saying, I love you, Jesus, in sign language. Because when you look at Jesus, you'll realize that the Lord bore Israel on eagles' wings to bring them to himself at the foot of Mount Sinai. But when you look at Jesus, you'll see that the Lord in Christ did even more. Jesus bore us on his outstretched arms on the cross. He gave himself, literally, he gave his life, dying the death that we deserve, in order to draw us into especially his enemies, drawing his enemies into a relationship with God the Father so that we could be adopted by God the Father and enjoy that intimacy of love with the Father as his beloved children. Or, to use language from our text, that glorious image, Jesus Christ gave his life so that we could be God's treasured possession. You see that word in verse 5, treasured possession? Like I said earlier, it is beyond my capacity to describe to you the, the glory of what that means. But quite literally what it means is a treasured possession is the term in, for the thing a king values most. So a treasured possession would be the thing, that, the, the thing that the king has that holds the king's deepest affection and what the king values most. And here what the Lord is saying is, the Lord is saying, I rescued you and brought you to myself because I desire you to be my treasured possession so that all my affection might be focused upon you and that you might enjoy that affection. Human, human, Christian or not Christian, you were designed to receive affection. And you know that. You've been searching for it all your life, very often in broken places. And the Lord is calling you to be his treasured possession. Look at the Lord Jesus and what he gave to bring you into that enjoyment of intimacy. And that will drive your obedience. Because when you really know that costly love of Christ for you, then it will call forth that response in you. You'll be able to see what Jesus has done for you and that love will hit your soul and you will know that you are a treasured possession purchased through Christ and brought to the Father and then your soul will rebound to say, Jesus, you gave all that you are for me and now I joyfully, willingly want to give all that I am for you. I surrender my life to you. And I surrender my life to you even when I feel its cost. Because you felt in far greater cost to bring me to yourself. That's how holiness works. That's how obedience is motivated in the Christian heart. And it also explains why sin 
And disobedience is such a big deal for a Christian. Look at the text again. Um, God is talking to Israel. Uh, verse 4, God uh, points to his own love. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And then comes a little disconcerting part. Verse 5, um, now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now notice the word if. It's, there's, a, there's a condition. Um, the Lord says, uh, Israel, I've shown my love for you by saving you. And if you respond to my love through obedience, then you'll enjoy the privileges of this intimacy that I'm calling you into. But on the other hand, the implication is, and the rest of the Old Testament bears this out, um, if, you, if you reject obedience, then that's a sign that you are, uh, you are rejecting the intimacy and the offer of intimacy. And so that's why for a Christian, um, sin is, is, is so grievous because it's saying no to the intimacy that Christ gave his life to give you. And therefore, for those of us who are in the midst of temptation, those of us who right now, you're feeling the costliness of being a, a follower of Jesus, or for those of us who are... Um, who are struggling with fear or shame or anxiety or guilt. What you need to do to battle all of those things, temptation, shame, guilt, what you do is you look away from yourself and away from the temptation and away from your shame and you look at Jesus Christ and you see him carrying you on eagle's wings to the Father. You see his preemptive love for you because his love remains preemptive. His love is preemptive for you even if you have claimed to be a Christian for a long time and right now you're thinking to yourself, but I have I've belonged to Christ and yet my heart has still rebelled against the Lord. Yet nevertheless, the Lord's love is still preemptive for you. The Lord's love still holds out his hand, his love for you. Even when the, your heart is saying, no, 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 the Lord comes to you and loves you. So look at him. And then as you see the Lord Jesus on the cross bearing you on eagle's wings to the Father, then the Lord will pour out his Holy Spirit upon you. And the Holy Spirit will awaken your soul, awaken your heart, and you will find yourself echoing back the love that Christ is pouring out upon you. And then you will be free. That's how we do spiritual warfare. When God calls us to obey, he calls us to intimacy. It's because of the covenant, a committed relationship. It's because of his costly love. And lastly, it involves a mission. Look back at verse 6. The Lord says, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Um, now, a priest, particularly one in the Old Testament, um, a priest is somebody with a special privilege and a special responsibility. The privilege is that, especially in the Old Testament, a priest is somebody who has privileged access to God. The responsibility is that the priest is meant to represent God to other people who have, so to, so to speak, less access to him. And therefore, what we learn here is that the Lord is calling Israel into a life of obedience in part so that through Israel, God can, um, Israel can represent the Lord to other nations, to the rest of the world, so that they can enter into the covenant with God as well. Or another image is holiness. They are to be a holy nation. Holiness is one of the main ways the Old Testament describes the character of God. 
God's character is totally unique and different than anything we can fully imagine. God's, uh, God is morally pure. He's the perfect union of power and love and justice and kindness and moral purity all together. And Israel and the church today is meant to reflect his character to the world so that our holiness and our obedience is one of the ways the rest of the world gets to see who God is and what God is like. It's missional and missionary. Now, one of the things that that means for us, friends, is if you belong to Jesus Christ, your secret holiness, your secret obedience is never really just for you. Your secret holiness and your secret obedience is part of the way God is shaping you to be a faithful and effective ambassador to to the world around you. One of the best things you will ever do for this city is your secret holiness and obedience. Because when you are secretly obedient and holy to the Lord, then you are most ready to represent Jesus well, or to use the words we like to use, you are ready to reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ to people around you. Your holiness will be a gift to everyone around you and to the generations that succeed you. Your holiness is everything for the people around you. And in the same way, our sin, there is no secret sin. There's secret sin, but even our secret sin impacts the people around us because it will thwart our capacity to reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ and, we, and our secret sin will impede us from taking our role in mission and serving the people around you. Our secret sin is a plague on the people around us. And so, Emmanuel, as we enter into this next phase of the book of Exodus, the Lord is calling us to a renewed commitment to obedience, but not the drudgery kind. You know, the drudgery, drudgery kind of, oh dear, I better obey, or oh, I'm going to obey because that means I'm better than the average, I'm better than the other guy. That kind of obedience the devil loves. But the Lord Jesus is calling us to a different kind of obedience, a kind of obedience that says, I have been loved and I have been chosen to become the treasured possession of God the Father through the purchase of his Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. What can I do and how can I respond to so deep and profound a love other than to say, Lord Jesus, all that I am is yours. Take my life and let it be fully consecrated, Lord, to you. That's what the Lord is calling us to. And as the Lord allures you back into that place of intimacy, he will empower you and he will release you in the lives of others and in the lives of this city. He's calling you to obedience because he's calling you to intimacy. Listen to him. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.